Today, I would invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to open it to the book of Acts, chapter 15. If you're using one of the sanctuary Bibles down below you, it's on page 783. The words to verses 1 through 6 will be on the screen in a few moments as I prompt you to follow those. But as we go through the rest of chapter 15, I just want you to look down in your Bible and follow along as I go through and help point out what was going on in the early church of Antioch and Jerusalem at this time. We've been studying over the past several weeks what it means to be a transformational church, and we've been looking at the church of Antioch as an example or a model for how we might be transformational today. And I have really enjoyed diving into this part of the book of Acts, and I hope that you have as well. Would you take a moment now as we pray? May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week, we were riding in the car and listening to country radio, and between songs, the DJ told a little story about Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban. You know, they're married and they're both uh, very well known in um, movies and music. Keith Urban's a country singer. And the DJ said that Nicole and Keith never text each other. They only call or FaceTime. And FaceTime, if you have a smartphone, is when you can actually see the person you're talking with on the screen and it's live. And so they only talk or FaceTime. I think that would be helpful for a lot of us because often over the years when I have done marriage counseling, people, the couple will often say that they argue over text. They text and argue with each other. And how unhealthy that is just to fire off an angry text at your spouse or someone you're close with, or maybe that happens in your workplace. So the, the way that Nicole and Keith do it might not work exactly for you, but it helps us to see that there are some better ways to manage our conflicts. And the church at Antioch helps to model that. Conflict resolution is one of the things that I talk about a lot with premarital counseling. To help couples understand that conflict will certainly happen and that there are some biblical principles that can help them to navigate that and manage their conflict. It's not a matter of if it will arise, it's a matter of when. We talk about our various styles of conflict resolution. There are some people who just pounce and they're ready to attack when there is a conflict and to go after it. And then there are others who don't like that. Quite the opposite. They will withdraw or retreat and don't even want to go there. Others will deny that there's even a problem and everything is just hunky-dory. And others will avoid it at all costs just to keep the peace. After all, we Christians are called to be peacekeepers. And we find in the church especially we are called to be peacekeepers and we don't want to offend anyone. So... Often we will just sweep things under the carpet and move on and pretend like there's nothing going on at all. 
just keep the church peaceful and harmonious when there actually may be some things that we really need to get um, resolved. We are called to be unified. And as you heard in the Scripture earlier, God is so pleased when His people dwell together in unity. But we, we must not um, avoid dealing with conflict issues for the sake simply of keeping people in peace. We've got to look at what Jesus says and how we can learn to model those things in our own lives and in our churches. Our hope is to deal with conflict situations in a Christ-like way with the ultimate goal of pleasing God in all things. That whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, that we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, as Paul writes in Colossians 3.17. We find numerous conflicts in Scripture. If you go back to the beginnings of Genesis, you remember the story of how Joseph's brothers were jealous of him because they felt that he had favor from their father. And so instead of dealing with it in an appropriate way, they sold him and they attacked him and then they, well, we sold him into slavery and then reported back to their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And on and on there are examples in Scripture that show us the way that might not be appropriate to deal with things. When we get into the New Testament, Jesus provides the disciples a good model of reconciling differences and trying to move forward. You remember in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, he provided this teaching. And he, he says that we are to go to one another to resolve our differences. And if that doesn't work, then maybe we take another one along and another wise person and sit down around the table and see if we can resolve things in a biblical way, in a graceful way. And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, then you may have to take it to the assembly. Churches like ours have used this as a model to work out our differences. And we have groups like deacons who are called to be peacemakers. And if there are things in the church that one or two might not be able to resolve, then we can go to our deacons. Others have elders that can help with this, this process and facilitate a resolution. But we have a process. Jesus has said that this is important and that we don't want to be estranged from one another and living in conflict. In the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 24, the Lord is called Jehovah Shalom, God our peace. And we know Jesus, the Prince of Peace, desires that we live in peace. And so I'm hoping today that we will all learn a few things that we can apply to our own personal lives, our schools, our workplaces, and even here as we journey together in a, as a church. You will find as we study the book of Acts in the 15th chapter that there became a significant conflict between the, the Christians at Antioch and some of the Christians called Judaizers who were in Jerusalem. The Antioch church is dealing with this threat and how they dealt with it was remarkable. It was an internal threat because it was from other Christians, other people who were part of the family of God. And it was an external threat because this was a group of people not sanctioned by the Jerusalem church who came all the way up to Antioch 
to tell the Christians at Antioch that they were doing things wrong. Miss Kate alluded to this in her children's message this morning. I, I believe that had this not been handled in a biblical fashion, it could have met the, the, the demise of the early church. But because it was handled in the way that it was, we have the church as it is today. Verses 1 through 6, let's read together. Certain people came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and were teaching the believers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And that was a religious ritual for all of the people of the Jewish faith. What they're saying is that when you become a Christian, you had to go through that ritual as well. This was the Judaizers. They had come to say this. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas, the leaders of the Antioch church that we've been studying about, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, the Judaizers, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So this sets up the Jerusalem Conference, or the Jerusalem Council, as it is called. Now, you remember that the Antioch church was the church that was just on fire for God. And it sent Barnabas and Paul on all three of the missionary journeys. After the first missionary journey, which lasted about three years, Paul and Barnabas came back and they reported all that had happened to the believers there at Antioch. And then they continued to minister there for quite some time. And as they were continuing along in that ministry, then this group, which was not sanctioned by the leadership in the Jerusalem church, came up to Antioch, you would say down from Jerusalem, because Jerusalem, the holy city, and they came to Antioch to tell the people at Antioch that they were wrong. And that's where we are. And what I'd like to do is just walk through and look at the response of the Antioch church and see how the folks all uh, together came up to a resolution. Follow with me now, uh, starting at verse 7. After much discussion, so there was a lot of debate. If If you've been in business meetings in congregations over the years, you know that that can be a place where there's lots of discussion and there can be debate. And as congregational people, that's the way that uh, we are called as a church to make decisions. Uh, there's not a small group in, the, in our church, the Baptist church, congregational church, that makes all of the decisions. Ultimately, the congregation is responsible. And so this council is sort of the predecessor to the modern-day congregational meeting, if you will. So they met 
to discuss all of this. Peter then got up and he addressed the body. Brothers, and we would say brothers and sisters, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. This is Peter speaking. And you remember Peter's witness to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and how he led Cornelius to Christ. Cornelius being one who was a Gentile. And so Peter's reminding of this. Verse 8, God who knows the heart showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. So whether Jew or Gentile or Greek, God gave the Holy Spirit to all who had received Jesus as Savior. And verse 9, He made no distinction between us and them. For He purified their hearts by what? By faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. That is the crux of the argument right there. It is by grace through faith that we are saved, not by religious work, not by religious ceremony. And you and I as Baptist Christians, we believe this today. We might say, some, or some might say, you're not saved unless you're baptized. Baptism is a symbol of the transformation of one's heart. It is a symbol that one has been made new in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. And we believe that conversion comes first, and baptism as a symbol follows. But there could be someone that would come to a church meeting and say, no, you've got to be baptized in order to go to heaven, in order to be saved, in order to be made right with God. And we would say, wait a minute, throughout Scripture, we understand it to to mean that we are saved by the grace of God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, and it is not by any works or any symbolic gesture that we are saved. That is the heart of what was happening here. The Judaizers said, you can't be saved unless you go through circumcision, this, this religious ritual of the Hebrew tradition. And the Gentiles, who had no background in that, were coming to Christ, and the church thought that was important enough to address this issue, to get it all out in the open, so that the church in Jerusalem could nip this in the bud. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 12, listen. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. I imagine they told the stories of the first missionary journey and how God had worked through them in all the places. We talked about this last Sunday. It was so much that God had done that the people were overcome with silence as they heard them speak. And verse 13 says, when they finished, when Barnabas and Paul finished, James spoke up. And scholars would say, many would say that James was the brother of Christ and the one who wrote the book of James that comes later as one of the general letters in the New Testament. 
the leader, the key leader in the Jerusalem church, when all of the discussion had, had come to a close, he spoke up, brothers and sisters, listen, listen to me. Simon, referring to Peter, has described to us how God at first showed this, his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with, his, with this as it is written. And he goes back to Scripture in the Old Testament. In verse 16, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who, do, who does these things that have been shown for, known for ages. And then verse 29, James comes up to this conclusion. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That we should not pull a stumbling block in their path. Every Sunday before I, I preach, in the quiet of my study, one of the prayers I pray is that, Lord, help me not be a stumbling block to anyone who has gathered in this place this morning. Let me not be a hindrance. Let me not say or do anything that would hinder someone from hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. I, I commend that prayer to all of you that we as God's people never want to be a stumbling block to someone else by our words or our deeds. And that's what James is saying. It is, not, uh, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let us not put anything in the pathway of a, of a Gentile that would hinder them or, or keep them from turning to, to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to... And then here are some things that they should be aware of, that they should do in their religious practice uh, and this is in the form, will be in the form of a letter. Abstain from food polluted by idols. Some of the pagans would eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, the Apostle Paul in one of his other letters, 1 Corinthians, said that those, those idols are not real at all. There's only one true God. And for some people... Um, eating that meat's not a big deal. But if eating that meat that you got in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to a, a pagan idol might be a hindrance to another believer, in this case, the Gentiles could be a hindrance to the Jewish Christians, then just leave that alone. Don't eat of that meat. Bypass it. That's one of the things. And, and then abstain from... The meat of strangled animals and blood. Don't eat the meat of, of, of animals that, has, that have not been uh, prepared in such a way that were according to the Jewish cleanliness laws. And also, uh, the, the blood was the symbol of life. And some pagans would try to um, eat meat that still had, that had not been drained of its blood so that they would be made right with their pagan gods. And so all of this is, is going around. And so James is saying, here are some things that are important to the Jewish Christians and Gentiles. It would be good for you to be aware of these as well. 
And then verse 23, 21, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So they would write a letter and help the Gentile believers in Antioch see the importance of these things, but they would make it very clear that all people were called to be followers of Jesus and there would be no rules or regulations that would be required for that other than their faith in God through Jesus Christ and that of its, in of itself. Verse 22, when the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of the, the, uh, their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers, With them they sent the following letter. And the rest of that passage from verse 23 on to the end of 29 summarizes the decision that they made in the Jerusalem council. So I'm not going to read all of that again. It just reiterates what we've already just discussed. But this group of leaders was selected from the Jerusalem church to accompany Paul and Barnabas to go back to Antioch to report all that had been decided. And then in verse 30, the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and they delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Do you hear that? Could you imagine if you were one of the people there in Antioch who had come from a Gentile background and you had placed your faith in Jesus Christ and everybody there, the leaders Paul and Barnabas, told you that you were a Christian and then someone else came along and uh, called your salvation into question? Could you imagine how you might feel? And then there's a report that comes back from the Jerusalem church that explains and and helps you to know that your salvation is intact. Could you imagine the joy that you would experience? That's exactly what happened. The people read the letter and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the Word of God. I'd like to take this scriptural account and share with you five basic approaches to conflict resolution. And there's a place for you to jot this down in your notes. Uh, Maybe in your workplace, in your relationships, some of these steps might help you to work toward some reconciliation. The, and we, we see that this is all uh, taken from the way that the Antioch church and the leaders in Jerusalem approach this whole thing. To anticipate conflict rather than deny that it exists. Just know that it will come. They anticipated this. It was not something unusual. And you and I can anticipate that there will be conflict at some point in our organizations, in our family, and even in our congregations. And just how we handle it is most important. Because conflict can be a good thing. Friction can be a good thing. 
friction keeps your car on the road. It's the friction between your tires and the asphalt that keeps your car traveling in the right direction at the constant speed that you'd like it and keeps it from veering off the path. So friction can be a good thing if it's harnessed and dealt with and contained in an appropriate way. Second, we want to address the problem with wisdom. We're, we're going to seek biblical counsel. We may need to sit down with some trusted leaders in a congregation as you make difficult decisions for the future of a church. Address it with wisdom. If it's in a marriage, maybe the, the best thing is to get some good pastoral counseling to help that marriage to be successful, to navigate some of the conflicts that might be ahead. And then the next thing is to look to resolve it, to try to work through it and put it behind you, have conflict resolution. And in that, some of us may have to be a, a looking to compromise. We may say, well, I see your point and I, you see where I'm coming from. Let's see if we can meet in the middle. The one thing for sure in the Antioch church and in the Jerusalem church as they dealt with this at the Jerusalem conference, they took salvation very seriously. That was a core value. That was something that was non-negotiable. Some of the other things were negotiable, but that was at the heart of the matter. So while we may compromise on some of the lesser important things, there are some things that are very, very important and key biblical values to us and along those lines the last is to graciously agree to disagree there may be times where we need to come to the table and sit down with one another and agree to disagree and when we come to the Lord's table that we break bread with our brothers and sisters in peace agree to disagree there's a quote that is attributed, some attribute it to Martin Luther. Others say it may be uh, someone who followed him. But nonetheless, it's, it's well known and it goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, meaning freedom. In all things, charity and love. I'd invite you to look at the screen and read that quote with me. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity and love. Some questions as we leave this place today. How can you and I model healthy conflict resolution in our circles of influence, in our families, in our workplace, in our friendships, in our online connections? Have, have you ever said something online that you later regret? Have you ever posted something that you wish you wouldn't have? Have you ever hit, hit send on that email and you're like, oh no. Yeah, many of us have. I, I have done that too. So there are some ways that we can learn from communication and use some of these biblical principles that we might think and pray before we click, right? 
Or what about our marriages or our congregations? How can you and I model healthy conflict resolution in our circles of influence? Second, identify an area where you and I would say where I need God's help to navigate a conflict. Maybe there's a disagreement you're in. Maybe there's something brewing. And I invite you, as I would, to commit it to prayer. So whatever that thing is or that, with that relationship, commit it to prayer today. And don't, don't be afraid to ask for help. Our pastoral staff is happy to help guide you. And we have some really fabulous pastoral counselors that we're connected with that can help you with some of these tough decisions or issues that you face. So don't be too proud to ask for help. And then, would you today join me in remembering that God is our peace? That God is our Jehovah Shalom. He is our God of peace. And Shalom does not imply the absence of trouble, but God's peace in the middle of it. God is with us. Our Jehovah Shalom. No matter what we might face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that we can gather together and look at this case study of the church at Antioch and to see when they came into a conflict situation that they were able to address it and send a delegation down to Jerusalem and gather the leaders together to appropriately Resolve it, Lord. Thank you that we have these ancient words that can serve as a model for us today in our own relationships, in our own situations. And all of this, Lord, is rooted in the love of Jesus, in the grace of Jesus, in the words of Jesus. Lord, if there are members and others today who are trying to navigate situations like this or other difficulties without Jesus, Lord, help, help them to know that it's so vitally important to have Him at the core, that He's our foundation. We offer this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.